Um, hey, everyone. My name's Thomas. I'm the campus minister here uh, with RUF. Uh, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and at the same time, you're never so good uh, that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that means that the Christian life from start to finish is all about God's kindness, um, that we relate to God based on his grace as a gift, uh, that it doesn't have anything to do with our works, our goodness, or our badness. It's actually all about God's kindness towards us. And every semester in RUF, we do a sermon series. And this semester, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so this is week five of large group, week five in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's really just Jesus giving us his vision of what it means to live the good life. It's Jesus telling us about the good life. Uh, and so last week, we looked at Jesus teaching on righteousness righteousness. Uh, We learned that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He said he didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what that means is that he came to give us the approval that we long for and that we're actually made for. And the Christian life is that you receive approval on the front end, not after you work for it. You receive the approval of Jesus on the front end. And out of that, you're enabled to relate to God's word in a different way. You're enabled to become more and more a person who loves the Bible, a person who embodies the t- being the type of person that Jesus calls us to. And so for the next couple of weeks, Jesus is going to kind of be riffing on this, uh, this like theme here. Uh, he's going to be talking about a couple different topics. Uh, and so this week we're talking about anger. anger. And so as we look at our passage tonight, uh, we're just going to consider three points. Uh, first, Jesus and anger. Second, our anger problem. And third, God's way of peace. So Jesus and anger, our anger problem, and God's way of peace. I want to pray for us, and we can go and get started. Our Father, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Uh, I don't want to ever take it for granted again that we can gather together and be on campus um, and do this uh, freely and safely. Um, What a gift that is. Lord, I do pray that you would be with us tonight, um, that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. Uh, Lord, I confess that I don't know um, what everyone here needs, um, but Lord, you do. So I pray that you would um, speak through your word tonight. You promise that anytime your word goes forward, it doesn't uh, return to you void. It accomplishes the thing for which you sent it. So Lord, I, I pray that you would do that tonight. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first off, let's look at Jesus and anger. Um, So the beginning of our passage, look with me to verse 21. So Jesus is kind of introducing this uh, kind of way of speaking that he's going to be using um, for the rest of chapter 5. We're going to look at this for a couple weeks in a row, where he says, basically, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Um, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said. He's accounting for what his audience has heard about a particular topic. And then, but I say to you, he's redirecting and interpreting what, what actually it is. Uh, and so Jesus today um, does this, but with the command, you shall not murder. He says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So the first part of that, you shall not murder, it's just verbatim the sixth commandment, um, which was one of the commandments that God gave to Moses to give to his people Israel, uh, kind of the basis of morality uh, in the scriptures and also in our world 
So it's a pretty straightforward command. You shall not murder, right? Uh, and then the second part of it, he says, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Uh, that's actually not a specific reference from the Old Testament. That's just a summary of kind of the, the popular understanding of the Old Testament teaching. Uh, and if you look all over the Old Testament, if someone commits murder, then they are going to be liable to judgment. And that judgment is going to render them usually as one who is worthy of being put to death. So this is just a straightforward teaching that pretty much everybody would have affirmed. Um, but if you remember from last week, Jesus is kind of combating a certain interpretation of the Bible. Uh, there were certain people who wanted to abolish the scriptures, who wanted to just kind of do away with them. And there are other people who wanted to take the scriptures and turn them into a checklist. And Jesus is speaking more directly at the people who wanted to take the scriptures and turn them into a checklist. And so Jesus here is teaching a deeper righteousness. He's teaching that there's more to this commandment than just simply not killing someone. Uh, so why does Jesus need to do this? Why is this necessary? Um, so my wife's name is Molly, and occasionally she will uh, text me and tell me, you know, okay, don't eat a big lunch today. I'm making dinner, like a really good dinner tonight. Um, so imagine Molly tells me this, and she just says, I'm making like your favorite dinner tonight, which would be focaccia pizza. If you haven't had it, it's amazing. Um, so Molly's saying, I'm making this, so don't eat a big lunch. Okay, am I uh, doing what Molly asked if I hear her say, don't eat a big lunch, and I decide to eat six really small meals that afternoon? Um, I decide, well, I'm going to Cane's. I'm not going to get the Caniac. Maybe I'll get the three-finger combo this time. <laughs> it's not a big lunch. I did what she asked. Uh, well, after that, I'm still a little hungry, so maybe I'll go to Runza, but hold the Frings this time, you know? Or maybe then I'll get a small smoothie at Juice Stop, right? So I come home. Molly asks, you know, how was your afternoon? I'm like, well, I, you know, just ate six little meals. It was great. Uh, how do you think she's going to respond? She's not going to like that. She's going to be mad. So here's the thing. Did I technically do what she said? Yes. But did I actually do what she said? No. You see, that's what Jesus is saying with all of these, these folks that are kind of trying to turn the law into a checklist. They're trying to acquit themselves. They're trying to make themselves feel okay by shrinking down the requirements of the law, making it just one specific thing. And what Jesus here is saying is that there are vast implications to this commandment and to other commandments that he's going to talk about later. So Jesus here is showing what it means to live a life of righteousness that the law implies. Uh, specifically here talking about the prohibition against murder. So how does he sum up kind of this teaching that he's giving us? Uh, Jesus kind of tells us two things here. Uh, he wants his disciples to die to their anger and to live to make peace. So to die to their anger and to live to make peace. Uh, so Jesus begins to unpack this in verse 22. Uh, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, that's a little bit more direct than you shall not murder. A little bit more, uh, it kind of hits us. Because we see that and we're like, okay, anger. Now that's something I can relate to. Uh, Jesus says right off the bat, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Um, and he is just taking the language that he had just applied to murder and applying it directly to being angry at your brother. Uh, small note, that word brother, it can mean brother or sister. 
So this applies to all of us. Just want to make sure everyone knows that. Um, Jesus here is saying that it is equivalent, that, that being angry with your brother or sister is the same thing as murder. Uh, and I, I want to be clear what Jesus is not saying here. Um, I don't think Jesus is saying uh, you cannot experience anger whatsoever. I don't think Jesus is like the idea is that you're just kind of like this is in person that is completely unaffected by everything. Because uh, what is anger? At its base level, anger is just kind of the natural response to when there's some sort of injustice or someone is kind of encroaching on your territory. Uh, and that's, it's kind of like a thing that we can't really control almost. It's a feeling that just kind of comes about. Jesus is not saying you're not allowed to feel that sort of thing. Actually, in the Bible, uh, Jesus himself experiences anger. Uh, and when we look at things in like the Psalms and in the Old Testament, uh, the people of God are actually encouraged to be angry about certain things. Um, anger is, at times, a godly response to living in a fallen world. So Jesus isn't saying, don't be angry. But what is he saying? Uh, so this word here, angry, it's, uh, for you kind of English nerds or grammar nerds, it is a present participle, uh, which means that it's kind of bringing about ongoing action. Uh, so it literally says everyone who is being angry with his brother or everyone who continues to be angry with his brother. And the word used here, there's two words for anger in the New Testament. One of them means just kind of like a flare-up anger, which is a natural response on some level. And the other one means kind of like rage or something that you're stewing in. And that's the one that Jesus uses here. So Jesus is not saying that you can't feel anger, but what he is saying is that we're not supposed to stew in it. We're not supposed to uh, like nurse a grudge or just sit in anger. What else does he say here? He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus kind of understands how anger works. He knows where our anger often leads us. We see here that anger can often lead us to contempt says, whoever insults his brother. Some translations say, whoever says raka, uh, which is just, I believe, an Aramaic word. It was Greek or Aramaic, I'm not sure. Could be one of, one of the other. In any case, what it means is empty-headed. It means basically like calling someone an idiot. Jesus is saying, whoever calls someone an idiot is liable to the council. Uh, basically what he's saying, if you call someone an idiot, uh, then you're liable to like the Supreme Court. You're every bit as guilty as someone who's actually murdered someone. And then whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying that, that calling someone an idiot, insulting someone's character, calling them foolish, uh, is a result of the same spiritual sickness that murder is. On some level, uh, when we insult someone, when we respond with rage and contempt towards a person, what we're doing is protesting their presence in our life. And at its worst, what we're doing is wishing they weren't here, wishing they were dead. So Jesus here names our rage and contempt for what it is, and in so doing, he's calling us to die to our anger, to see it for what it is, and to die to it. So that's what Jesus is calling us to do negatively, but also positively, he's calling us to live to make peace. Live to make peace. That's what biblical righteousness is. It's not merely stopping to do things that are bad. It's not just saying no to certain things. It's actually saying yes to things as well. There's a positive righteousness that Jesus describes here. 
uh, he gives kind of two examples, and we're just going to focus on the first for the sake of time. Uh, We find it in verse 23 and 24. uh, Jesus is describing a scene that would have been common for a Jewish person at the time. Uh, It was going to the temple to offer a sacrifice. And this was kind of the center point of the ancient Israelite religion. And so what this person is doing is very, very important. And Jesus says, so if you're going to offer your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So what Jesus is saying, maybe it would be reasonable uh, if he would say to you, uh, if you are at the altar about to make a sacrifice and you remember that you have a problem with someone, it's your responsibility to go and be reconciled with them. But that's not what he says. What he says is if you are at the altar and you remember that someone else has a problem with you, it's your job to go to them and be reconciled. Like offering this sacrifice would have been the height of religious devotion. It would have been a very important thing to do. And Jesus says not to do that, but instead to be reconciled. Uh, And a point to like kind of note about this, uh, when Jesus is describing the altar, there was only one altar that a person could do this with in in Israel at the time. And it was in Jerusalem. And where Jesus is sitting is about 80 miles to the north of that. And so he's saying to these people who are sitting there, if you make the week-long journey to go and sacrifice an animal, what you should do if you realize that someone someone else has something against you is you should make that week-long journey back, be reconciled to them, and then make another week-long journey, and then go offer your sacrifice. Jesus is telling us that there is this undeniable connection between how we treat others and how we relate to God. He's not saying it's not important to offer a sacrifice. He's not saying church is not important. What he's saying is that the way that we treat other people, the way we are in relationship with other people, is very connected to the way that we relate to God. It's not enough for us to just cease to be angry. We need to actively pursue peace insofar as we can. And then in this second image that Jesus has, uh, it's kind of a similar deal, but it's actually, rather than it being a friend that has something against you, it's an enemy, someone who's accusing you of something. And what Jesus is teaching here, it kind of turns our expectations on our head, because he is saying that what we need to do is kind of do the opposite of what we think we should in one of those situations. Like, if someone has something against you, or if someone accuses you of something, in a lot of ways, the natural response is to pull away from them. The natural response is to be self-protective, right? What Jesus is saying is that we need to move towards people in that moment. That's what it means. We're not only called to just stop being angry. We're supposed to live as peacemakers. So Jesus calls us here to forego self-protective impulses and live as peacemakers with both friends and enemies. All right, so that's easy, right? Got that check. I think if you're listening, right, there's a problem here. We have an anger problem. Jesus teaching on anger, it it might be beautiful to us on some level, but I think at best we find it beautiful, but maybe not realistic. Uh, At worst, we find it just completely ridiculous, and we might even think that it's kind of weak. Why do we take issue with Jesus' call to die to our anger and live to make peace? I think there are lots of reasons, lots of reasons why we think this way. Uh, I just want to highlight three. Uh, First off, I think it's because anger is scary. Anger is scary. 
Uh, You know this if you've been on the receiving end of the kind of abuse that Jesus describes here. Like, you know what it feels like to be called an idiot, especially if it's by someone important in your life. Like, that leaves a mark on you if your parent calls you that. If your parent calls you an idiot, if your parent tells you that you're worthless, it leaves a mark. It, It murders the soul. Anger itself, receiving it, is scary. But not only that, I think facing our own anger is scary. Again, remember, what is anger? Anger is uh, the natural response to assault or injustice. It's a burst of energy that compels us to do something. And for many of us, like, we want to do everything we can to avoid that. <laughs> we want to do everything we can to having to deal with the problems that are thrown on us. Uh, many of us, they, we want to avoid doing something about the things that are wrong in life. And I think that we can do this for, for many reasons. I think many of us are afraid of people's response. Like we're scared of taking up space. Like if someone does something to me that makes me angry and I tell them, hey, that, that made me mad. Like there's a real tangible fear there for many of us that we're taking up too much space and that that person is going to be angry in response. Or for some of us, we, we might even just doubt that our experience matters. Or we might question, well, maybe I misunderstood them. Or for others of us, we kind of have this a bit of kind of like a martyr complex where we're completely okay with taking other people's anger, uh, but we're never going to tell anybody anything. And it's an unsustainable way of living. So anger is scary. That could be one reason why we take issue with Jesus' call to die to our anger and live to make peace. But I think on the flip side, uh, anger works. Anger is effective. What do I mean by this? Um, I've been recently watching the show Ted Lasso. Anybody watching Ted Lasso? Great show. Really, really great show. Big time Midwestern vibes. Love it. Um, But if you don't know, it it tells the story of a guy named Ted Lasso uh, who is a football coach here in the United States and who gets kind of uh, drafted to become a soccer coach over in England. Uh, And it's a really, really terrible team. Um, and he's brought over there, and it's just like this huge shocker. Uh, but he kind of has success, and people start to like him. And it's because he's like the quintessential Midwesterner. He's from Kansas, but he's Nebraska nice, like for sure. In every way, very positive, wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, there's this problem that happens at one point with the team, though. The, the main player, uh, his name's Jamie Tart. He's really, really good, but he's kind of a jerk. Uh, and he alienates himself from the entire team. So the best player on the team uh, is kind of a loner, and the rest of the team doesn't want to play with him, and so the team's playing poorly. And so what Coach Ted Lasso decides to do uh, is he needs to introduce the team to his alter ego, who he calls Led Tasso. Led Tasso. And Led Tasso is everything that is opposite of Ted Lasso. Where Ted Lasso is Nebraska nice and encouraging, uh, Led Tasso is angry and in your face. He's a little bit like Bobby Knight if you're familiar with him, back in the basketball days. So uh, in, this, in this scene, uh, Ted Lasso, who is Led Tasso at the time, comes out of the locker room onto the pitch, as they call it, uh, and he like flips a cooler right out of there, uh, throws a water bottle into the stands, he kicks a ball at players, and then he comes out, and this is the first thing he says to them, all right, you little turd birds, start touching your toes. And it's like these are professional soccer players, you know? Like, they're like, what? Like, what do you, and then they, like, they get mad. He's like, oh, yeah, now start touching other people's toes. He's like, what muscle is this supposed to stretch out, you know? 
And he's just like a complete and total jerk the entire practice. He's yelling at people when they get drills wrong. And what happens? What happens when, when Ted Lasso does this? The team bonds together because they have a common enemy. They have a common enemy. They don't like experiencing this sort of anger, and it brings them together. We see the same sort of dynamic in a lot of athletics. We see the same sort of dynamic in like a lot of military environments. We see the same dynamic in like it's why fraternity hazing is still a thing, because it's effective. You see, we understand that to die to our anger means that we're not going to have that sort of tool of being able to control people, right? Anger works. And if you've ever had someone really, really angry in your life, you know that that can control you. And it might be tempting to use that to control other people. So dying to our anger, it leaves us unable to control people. So anger is scary. Anger works. And then third and finally, anger feels good. Anger feels good. Another reason we may struggle with Jesus' teaching here is because anger is not so bad, actually. Uh, Open up Twitter, right? Open up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're an outrage culture. Like, we don't just disagree with people. We hate them. Like, your uncle thinks the left are idiots. Uh, Your classmate thinks the right are idiots. Boomers are idiots. Millennials are good for nothing. And don't even get me started on Gen Z, right? Like, it's just constant, Like, you open it up and it's happening. Uh, There's something deeply satisfying, though, about just dunking all over people, right? It's It's so much harder to account for someone's humanity and to look at them with nuance. And it's so much easier to be like, I disagree with you, therefore you're the worst. There's something so satisfying about that. And it's why we hate follow people on social media. Like, do you have someone you hate follow on social media? I do. Like, I hope I'm not the worst person in the room here. Apparently I am. Um, But hate following, it's when we follow someone, you know, that we don't really like, but we just love to talk about how terrible they are. Uh, I have multiple people like this on my feed. Why do we do this? Uh, British psychologist Lily Sabir says, from a neuroscience perspective, when we see something on social media we hate, we hit our self-esteem button through the brain and release dopamine. It can actually function like an addiction. When you're seeing something that you hate again and again, you're reminding yourself, I'm not this. You're reminding yourself, I'm better than this. You see, hate following reinforces this idea that we're better than the people that we hate. That's addictive. It feels good. So there are various reasons why we may struggle with Jesus' call to die to our anger and to live to make peace. Lots of reasons why we might not like what he says. Anger can be scary. Anger can be effective. And anger feels good. But how can we be the sort of people Jesus is describing? The people who who die to our anger, the people who live to make peace. If there's so much in our culture, and if we're honest, even in our own hearts, that questions whether Jesus actually is even making sense here. How can we not only die to anger, but live as peacemakers? I think, fortunately, we're not left to bridge the gap between Jesus teaching on anger on the one hand and our anger problem on our own. Uh, God has actually made a way of peace. He's made a way of peace. In order to understand this way of peace, we need to see what God himself does with his anger. What God does with his anger. Uh, There's a popular idea that the God of the Old Testament is kind of a rageaholic on some level. Uh, Like, he gets really, really mad at the drop of a hat. Um, He kind of just has 
wicked high expectations of people, and he's just mean. And then there's this understanding that the God of the New Testament is somewhat different. Uh, there are several instances, right, where we see God's anger in the Old Testament. Um, there are several instances where I would say we even see it in the New Testament. A personal favorite of mine is from the book of Nahum. Uh, Nahum was a prophet, and he's prophesying against Nineveh. And so a prophet, what they do is they just receive God's word and they deliver it to the people. So Nahum has received God's word, and this is what he says about Nineveh. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt. Uh, to translate that into modern English, God said he's going to throw poop at them, right? And treat you with contempt. And that's what he does with, with an evil nation. And then with Israel, God says this in Numbers 14, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Right? Like, let the bodies hit the floor. Like, it's intense. You see, God's anger here, it's different than ours. Both of these instances are over sin and injustice. It's different from ours, but what does God do with this anger? What does God do with it? I think we see the answer to this question in the one who spoke the words that we're considering tonight. The answer is in Jesus. In Jesus, we see what God does with his anger. And we see in John 3, right after the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 17 tells us, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, God's just anger over sin drove him to send Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus, the one who lived to make peace and who died because of our anger. And not only this, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are given his righteousness. Uh, We looked at this verse again last week, but I'm going to repeat it again. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we call the great exchange a lot of times. Uh, When we place our faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness as a gift, such that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We are able to relate to God in utter and complete security. We're able to know that God delights in us. But on the other side, Jesus receives our sin and nails it to the cross. You see, when this story sinks in, we can be people who are more and more die to our anger. When the story sinks in, we can die to our anger more and more. We can be the type of people who don't have to use anger to control and manipulate. We can be the type of people who know that we are loved, who know that we're loved and we don't have to use anger to get what we want. We don't have to be so angry because we can see what God did for us and it melts our anger. And it can turn us into people who live to make peace. And when the story sinks in, we will more and more live to make peace as well. When we look at Jesus, we see the lengths that God was willing to go to make peace for us. And we can't look at that without wanting to go and make that happen for other people as well. You see, when we look at Jesus, we're changed. And so if you're here tonight and you're struggling with anger, which should be all of us, on some level. Uh, What I want to encourage you to is to look at Jesus. Look to Jesus and see what God does with his anger. See that in Jesus, God made an end to our sin on the cross so that he wouldn't have to make an end to us. 
and let that fill you up. And you can become more and more the person who dies to your anger and lives to make peace. Amen.